Um, so if you will, turn with me to the book of Malachi. And you know, every year, um, whoever might be president at that time does what's called the State of the Union. And, uh, and I want to give you just a little state of the family which affects the state of the church. We are definitely living in some very difficult times, challenging times, especially for the family and the church. And so it's in the book of Malachi chapter 2 is where we're going to look at in verse number 10 through 17. But on the humorous side, you know, I always got to tell you something. There was, a, there was a man and a wife. The wife had taken very ill, and the husband stood by her side in the hospital. They were elderly, and over time the wife knew she was getting ready to go to heaven, and so they said their goodbyes, and she died. She went to heaven, and there at the gate of uh, Saint, was St. Saint, uh, Peter, and uh, she said, oh, I'm so glad I made it to heaven. What do I have to do to get in? And he said, well, you just have to spell one word. And she said, what is it? And she, he said, love. She said, oh, that's so easy, L-O-V-E. He opened the gates and let her in. Well, down on earth, her husband now had gone through his grieving, and um, he was now living his life. And one day up in heaven, St. Peter had to take care of some business, and the man's wife happened to be walking by on the, pearl, on the streets of gold, and he said, would you mind watching the gate for me uh, for just a bit? And she said, no, not at all. And he said, just remember, it's one question, and in they come. So she went to the gate. It just so happened that down on earth, the husband passed away. And he's coming up to the pearly gates, and there's his wife, and they're so excited seeing each other again. And the gates shut, and she said, Honey, how have you been? He said, Well, it was really good. He said, After you passed away, I got the life insurance policy. And remember that young nurse that was taking care of you? And she said, Yes. And he said, Well, we got together, and we did things that you and I wished we could have done, like we went on cruises, we went to different islands. We had such a wonderful time. And he said, But how do I, what do I have to do to get in? She said, Just spell one word. And he said, What is it? Czechoslovakia. <laughs> he wasn't getting in, was he? <laughs> he said the wrong thing. Uh, Malachi chapter 2, <clears throat> beginning in verse 10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And here's a question. Why do we deal treacherously with one another, profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. All right, so remember this, the Lord's institution. Marriage is God's institution. It's easy to think, well, it must be of the state because you have to go down and get a license. But never forget, the institution of marriage is God's creation. Therefore, if it's God's creation, it's sacred. And if it's sacred, God also has the order in which he wants it, for instance, to abide by. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying and does not offer the offering anymore, nor do I receive it with goodwill from your hands. 
And uh, we say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one, having the remnant of the Spirit, and why one? Because here's the purpose of marriage. He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let some deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord, God of Israel, he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. And then I want you to look at this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Did you know we can wear God out, wear, weary him? I mean, we've always talked about God being strong and God always being constant. But here it says you can weary him. And how do we weary him? By doing the things that we shouldn't do in our families. And dealing treacherously in our marriages. And so, um, the point being here is that... Uh, Marriage is a divine institution. I want you to follow with me on this thought. As the family goes, so goes the nation. As the family goes, so goes the nation. And the second thought is, is as the marriage goes, so goes the family. So if there's issues within the relationships in the marriage, there's going to be issues in the family. And then the greater picture is the issues in the family are going to spill over into the community. And so some of the statistics, let, let me just share with you here. Um, in 2020, the marriage rate in the United States was 5.1 out of 1,000. In the 1990s, it was 9.8 out of 1,000. It has dropped five points in such a short period of time, meaning that marriages are breaking up, people are not interested in getting married anymore, and so on. The divorce rate is, was 2.9 out of 1,000 people in the population. So if you take 2.9 out of the 5.1 marriages, you've got a 60% failure rate in families. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the increase in violence, the increase in gang activity, the increase in, in uh, uh, discipline problems, behavior, dropouts in school, is all related to what's happening in the family. The absence of the fathers, even if they're in the home, is causing mayhem within the community. And so, and, and, and then let's look at for a minute the uh, church and what's happening in the church. Uh, in 2020, let me see here, in the, Christian, oh, in the 90s, People believed in Christianity, 90% of the population believed that Christianity was a viable religion. 2020, 43% of the population believed that Christianity is for real. Isn't that something? But notice that as the family is disintegrating, so also is the church disintegrating. Because as the family goes, the community goes. And when you have families in the church reflecting what's happening outside in the community, you're going to see the deterioration in the church. And so check this out. In um, the 90s, the average attendance in church, and we're talking globally, because you know you have some very large churches, and then you have some very small churches. But in the 1990s, the average attendance in church globally was 145. That was the average attendance. Today, it's 65. Notice the big drop. 
because the church is being affected by what's happening in the family. Now, I know people are like, whoa, it's this uh, Democrat party, it's the Republican party, it's the president, it's this person. And, and they make their decisions, they do what they're doing, but I'm telling you, the real problem is in the family. Because the family is deteriorating, and marriages are deteriorating, it's causing not only the nation to suffer an increase in violence, an increase in economic problems, and people don't want to go to work, and all those things is coming out of the family. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's an absolute truth. It's easier, to, isn't it, to blame somebody else than to take a look at our own selves. And so what I want to do today is to share with you some things that really we can do to ensure, out of the Bible, how we can protect our families from the attacks of the enemy. David said in Psalms 11 and 3, If the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's a good question. On one side, you think it's hopeless, right? If the foundations are destroyed, there's nothing you can do. But listen to the question. If the foundations are destroyed, what should the righteous be doing? And what we should be doing is restoring the foundation. And that's what I'm interested in doing today um, out of the Word of God. Are you with me? So I laid a lot of heavy stuff on you for a moment there just to show you that we're on a mission. And the little book that came out, it's cool, but it's a mission. And it's evidently dropped a bomb somewhere, and people are responding to it and have a need to know what does the Word of God say about families and how can I make it happen in our families. So let's go over to Genesis chapter 2, because you know that's where it all started, right? That's where God started the institution of marriage. So there's two institutions that God's created. One is marriage and one is the church. Man may step up and say he did it or she did it, but really God started it all, didn't he? And um, if God started it, God has the rules for it. And Paul, in Ephesians 5, you remember um, that passage where he says, husbands, love your wives, and that horrible one that says, wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> and children who hate this one, obey your parents. Paul then says in Ephesians 5 and 32, he says, this union of marriage is a reflection of the union between Christ and the church. Wow. So he's saying that he, he instituted marriage first as a type and a picture of what was coming in the church. So that what's happening in marriage is going to reflect and happen into the church. How many of you want to see revival in your church? How many want to see the pews full of people serving the Lord and worshiping God? Then we've got to build families. Not excitement, not enthusiasm. Those are all important, but we've got to fulfill the mission of God and build strong families. Because if you have strong families, you're going to have a strong church. Can you say amen? And so uh, we're going to do a little study here because anytime you want to study a subject um, in hermeneutics, let me throw a big word on you there, hermeneutics of the study of the Bible, there are principles. And one of them is called the principle of first mention. So if I want to study about the blood of Jesus, I'm going to go to Genesis and start looking for the first time I see blood. Leviticus and go through it and then when I'm finished I'm going to know all about the blood of God the blood of Jesus and so it is with the family we want to start in the book of Genesis because that's where God first mentions marriage Jesus mentioned it on a side note in Matthew 10 35 
and 36 when he said, did you know the, the members of your own family are your worst enemies? <laughs> ain't that the truth? Devil ain't got nothing over aunt so-and-so when she jumps in on the mix and starts the, all that mess. <laughs> but let's look at Genesis chapter 2. Go over here to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8, because God is showing us he has just started this thing called marriage. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put who? The man whom he had formed. Who did he put in there? The man. Where's the woman? She's not there yet. He put the man in the garden. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now a river ran, went out of Eden <clears throat> to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first was Pison, um, <clears throat> which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where, where, where there is gold. And uh, let's skip down here to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. So who did he put in the garden? Twice we see it there. Twice. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable or comparable to him. And this is an insight into, first of all, how God starts families. Because there is no marriage yet, and there is no family yet, but he has initiated the beginning of a family. And the way he initiated it was the single life. Sometimes we forget about that in the church, of how important the success of marriage depends upon the success of your single life. He didn't put a married couple in there. He put a single man in the garden. Why is that important? Because God wanted to show, first of all, that if you're going to have a successful relationship with anybody, you better, first of all, have a successful relationship with God. That Adam needed to learn how to relate to God. Thank you. He needed to learn what it was like to lean completely upon God. And so man, man was put in the garden first. So write that down in your notes. Is that God is interested in your single life. To make sure it's on the right track. There was an old spinster in the church. You know, that's an older lady. And um, she was widowed and had always been wanting to get a husband. And that's why she came to church. Was looking for a husband. <laughs> And the preacher got up one Sunday and he said, uh, whoever puts $100 in the plate today, pick out three hymns. So the little lady came running forward and put her $100 in. And he goes, wow, well, pick out three hymns. And she turned around and said, I'll take him, him. <laughs> got to admire her enthusiasm at her age. <laughs> <laughs> but not only did he put the single man in there first so he could build a relationship with God, he also 
made provisions for the single men. Did you see there in verse 9 that uh, he, he told him you can eat of all of these trees, all the fruit, anything you want out of there, just don't touch that one. And in verse 10, he also provided for him water. So he had food and water, all that he wanted. And then also it says there was gold and silver down there in 13 and, and 14. That God was going to bless him with uh, provision. And that as he related to God, he was going to know that God was taking care of all of his needs. So why is this all important to the family? Because singles sometimes think they're incomplete. And they start looking for someone else to complete them. It's an idea where they say, well, I'm 50% and he's 50%. And when we get together, we'll be 100%. But that's not how it works. Because one half times one half is one fourth, right? You get less when you're looking for your needs to be met in some other person. And so this whole thing about, well, I just need another human being to make me happy is a lie of the devil that destroys families. Because then people get together in their single life in order to try to find someone that will meet their need. And the problem is they're looking for someone to meet their needs. So you got two needy people coming together in a relationship and not able to meet each other's needs. What do you think is going to happen within three to five years? They're going to go their separate ways. And so, and this is important to the single ladies, if this man is not content in his singleness in his relationship to God, what makes you think he's going to be content in your relationship with you? It's not going to happen. But if he can find himself in his identity, and if she can find herself in her identity, and their happiness in God, and to know that he will meet all of their needs according to his riches and glory, guess what? You're going to have a powerful marriage. You're not going to have a marriage based upon neediness. You're going to have a marriage based on wants. And isn't that what we all want? I want that one to want me. And you want that one to want you. Can't keep your hands off of you. Amen? So God never intended for us to look for happiness in another human being. He wants us to find our happiness in him. So we're to build a relationship with ourselves. Adam was in that garden. I don't even know how long. I do know that according, that if you were to read on uh, verse 19 of, of Genesis 2, it says that he was given the job of taking, uh, making sure that he named all the creatures on the earth. That would have taken a long time. So he was in that garden by himself with God for a long time. And he never even noticed that he was missing anything until he got to the end of naming the animals. And then he realized every one of those animals had a, a companion. And then he recognized that he needed one. But up to that point, he was so fully content with his relationship with God that he didn't think about anything other than God. Isn't that the kind of man you want? Isn't that the kind of woman you want? Is that they're so sold out to God that they don't need anything from you, they just want. And so he made provisions for the single person, and he'll do the same thing to you. He'll walk with you, he talks with you, he provides you the food that you need, he provides you the water. And this is important because building our relationship with God makes us 100% 
and the other person 100% too. So you ought to have a relationship with God that you can call on him and answers. And one of the things that if you're, if you're single, and I'm just dealing with singleness for a moment, but when singleness, you should watch and see, does he pray? Does he believe God? When you have a need, does he reach out to God on your behalf? Same with her. And then look at verse 15 and 17. It says, And the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden they may, thou mayest freely eat. So God was doing what? Meeting all of his needs. And I keep hammering that point because I'm sick and tired of seeing marriages fall apart because one person got sick, handicapped, or disabled and couldn't meet the needs of the other person and they walk off from that marriage and leave them because you can't meet my needs anymore. In their single life, they were needy. But if you find your needs in the Lord and you find God is your source of everything, you're going to stay committed to that relationship all the way through. Can you say amen? So verse 17 again, it says, then he gave him an assignment. So first of all, single life, build a relationship with God. We're still talking about singles. Second of all, he gave that single man an assignment. Anybody see that in verse 17? To dress it and to keep it. Work the ground and protect the ground. You see, the first is to make sure that this person I'm meeting has built a relationship with God. And second of all, they're not looking for a mate to meet their needs. And third of all, they have an assignment. So the first thing we need to know, does this man have a job? See that? God gave him a job. This is what I want you to do. You're going to tend the garden. You're going to protect the garden. You're going to get the weeds out. You're going to make sure the bugs stay off the trees. The predators that come to take those fruit, you're going to keep it all fresh. And this is your job. This is what you're going to do. And so God, in our singleness, helps us to develop a work ethic. And so does this man have a job? That's a good question to ask. I told my daughters all the time, you ain't dating no deadbeat. And anybody that you have to drive around in your car with your gas and pay for their meal, you better get rid of them before daddy finds them. <laughs> well, why, dad? Because you're looking at the outside. You're not looking at the inside. Does he have a job? Well, then another case. Well, you know, he's had a job, has several jobs. Oh, so he jumps from one job to another. Yeah, but he does work. But it means what it tells me is your daddy, check this out, is he don't like conflict, can't deal with conflict, and don't want to be told what to do. And so he moves from one job to another. And some ain't right when they say, well, just, they, they're always treating me bad. At some point, you've got to realize they're not treating you bad. You're the one that's got the problem. <laughs> Amen. And so there's an issue there with commitment. There's an idea of participation. I'll participate as long as everything goes well on the job. But as soon as I've got to really make a commitment and a sacrifice, I want to get out. And if that's the case, see how God did it here? He's showing us that which, the qualities you're looking for is someone who's committed to the task that God has given to them regardless of the conflict that comes in their life. And if they can be committed to that, they have learned how to be committed in the relationship with you. And the second part of it is to guard it, to keep it, he said. So the question is, does he work? Yep. 
and is he a protector? Is he going to protect you or is he going to leave you in your moment of need? Now, I say this with tongue in cheek so you understand, but women are emotional. I didn't say weak, I said emotional. Men are logical. And that doesn't mean one's stronger than the other. We see a man with a sign, we'll work for food, we're going to roll the window down and say, dude, right across the street, there's a sign that says, now hiring. So if you really want to work, why don't you go? The woman's going to say, oh, honey, give him $5. Let him get something to eat. And we're going to say, you know he's going to go to that liquor store and drink that drink. No, he's hungry. You see how it works? It doesn't mean one's better than the other, but it's a good balance. But when a woman is emotional, and we know that, the man has to step up to learn to be the protector in those moments. And not to ever attack her, but to make sure she's protected from the attacks that come against her emotionally. You see, we have a bad day at work as a man. We just go in there and bang our head on something, or we sit and pout for a little bit, and we're okay. A woman carries it with her. Just try and ask her, how was your day? You better sit down for the next hour and a half. Because <laughs> they're going to tell you all about it. Isn't that right? They're emotional. It was 3 o'clock in the morning and a, a drunk man came to this man's house and was banging on the front door. And he heard it and he got up he went to the front door thinking it's an emergency, maybe one of the kids. And here was this drunk man standing there and he said, what do you want? He said, I need a push. And he said, get out of here. He slammed the door. It was pouring down rain. He went back to bed and got in there. And the wife said, what was it? She said, he said, well, some old drunk man came to the door and he needs a push. And she said, honey, don't you remember two years ago when your car broke down? And you needed help and those two young men helped you? You need to go help that man. He said, but he's drunk and he wants a push. And she said, go help him. So, of course, she, he gets up and gets dressed, goes out there opens the door, pouring down rain, it's dark, and he says, are you still out there? And the man said, yes. Do you still need a push? Yes. Well, where are you? I'm on the swing set. <laughs> He's drunk. <laughs> but you see, you see how men are? He'll get a push, he'll get out, he'll be all right. The woman says, go help him. And that's, that's because they're built and wired emotionally. And, and um, you remember, they don't do it as much anymore, but when I was a kid and growing up, we had door-to-door -door salesmen and uh, the fuller brushmen and uh, the vacuum cleaners. And this one guy, he was skillful. He said, you know, the wife always is home by herself during the day and the husband's away so I'm gonna go sell her a vacuum cleaner while he's away because you know we're logical like what three thousand dollars I'll go to Walmart and pick me enough for about hundred thirty nine dollars but she's you know she's vulnerable if the story's right so they would pick their time and they would go to the house and this one man went to the house and his little tactic was he had a little uh, feces from a dog and as soon as the door opened he'd throw it in there and then he would say I guarantee you that this vacuum cleaner can clean that up completely or I'll eat it. And she said, well, I'll go get a spoon because I don't have any electricity today. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> All right, back to the... If a man can't keep a guard about his own life, his home, and his finances, he won't be able to guard you. And that's why God gave him that job and said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build your relationship with me. I want you to know that all of your needs will be met by me. You will never need to learn turn to anybody else but me. And then I'm going to give you a job, and I want you to work that job, and then I want you to protect what I give you. And if you can do all of that, then you're the man that God is blessing in your life, and God is going to bless in the marriage. And then in verse 16 and 17, we're, we're talking still about the singles here, they had boundaries. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So you know what boundaries are. You, you've got some of the invisible ones. So if I was to start walking down there and got real up close to you, some of you would be cool with that. Others you'd be like, what's he getting so close for? And you know how you are in the store and somebody's starting to scoot over next to you and you can feel it. You just, it's like a force field around you. Boundaries is what it is. Boundaries are also rules that you have. You grew up with in the home. You don't do this, you don't do that. And God gave him some boundaries. God said, out of all of this stuff, you can eat anything that you want, but don't touch that one tree. Pretty simple boundary. In Deuteronomy 11, 20, and 7, God emphasizes this, and he says, you know, if you obey, if you obey my commandments, if you obey my boundaries, I'm going to bless you. But if you don't obey my boundaries, you will be under a curse. So we're living un, in a culture that doesn't want boundaries. I don't want to be told what to do. How many times have we heard that? Have you ever heard that from your children? I don't want you telling me what to do. Lord, don't say that in some homes. <laughs> They'll never ask that question again. <laughs> but we're in a culture, you see, because we've lost boundaries in our own single life, or never had any boundaries, we were given everything that we needed. We had no respect for the rules and regulations. When, when we did something wrong, they would just say, don't do that again. Lord, if I ever said anything to my mama, I'd be up against the wall, plastered, bleeding from the mouth. <laughs> and you remember the soap in the mouth. That might not have been healthy, but it sure was helpful to not do it again <laughs> or get better at hiding it. But nobody wants boundaries. And children are always going to test the boundaries. And we're always going to be tempted to cross the boundaries. And we're going to have people come into our lives that are going to say, oh, that's just religion, that's just church stuff. They just don't want you to have any fun. Come on, let's go do this. And because the devil's always trying to get us to break the boundaries. And I will say this, any man or any woman that can't keep boundaries in their own life will never be able to keep boundaries in the marriage. Let me say that again. If they can't keep their own boundaries and the boundaries that God has given them, they will not be able to keep those boundaries in the marriage. They will disrespect, they will cross over, they will take it lightly, and it will destroy the family. And that's what's happening in our country. Because there is no boundaries anymore. It's an amoral society that's turned immoral. There's no real right or wrong anymore. In fact, what was right is now wrong. 
Isn't that crazy? That we're the ones, that, though we have beliefs in the scripture, we're the ones that are deemed to be mentally incapable, disabled, wrong, and cultish because we believe a certain way. Where just a few years ago, we were the ones that held the standard up. But society has changed so much. And, and it's because a lot of the media that's coming out, a lot of the things that they're training children with that we've just totally been asleep about. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so we're going to have good boundaries. Children need boundaries. They don't like them. But they need them. And if they cross that boundary, you need to have enough strength to discipline them. And that discipline is what the Lord leads you in your life to do. Read that chapter on tough love. Because you know what? I love my kids like you love yours with an everlasting love. There's nothing they can do or not do that will ever make me love them less. But when they mess up and cross a boundary, I ain't their friend. And I've told them that. I can be friendly with you, but I'll never be your friend. I'm your daddy. And I'm going to make sure you get across that line before I go on to my reward that you become a man or a woman for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do the same. What are the rules of your home? Do you have them? Are they posted for the kids to read them? Or do you just roll with it, baby? Whatever happens, that becomes a new rule. No, you need rules in your home. Rules. So, then in the single life, we're still talking about that for a moment, God will bring a companion to you. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And that doesn't mean he was lonely. Because the Hebrew word there just means he's by himself. And uh, all the animals had mates. He didn't. He didn't notice it until towards the end because he had such a strong relationship with God. And God said that man, it's, it's not good that man shall be, be alone. I'm going to make him a helper. Notice that, a helper, someone to stand by him who's suitable for him. So remember, when God brings that woman in your life, don't ever criticize her because God said that's a perfect match for your crazy self. <laughs> and, and, and God will bring them to you. So instead of going to the left, to the left, to the right, to the left, you know that song, right? God will bring you a mate suitable for you. Isn't that beautiful? God knows exactly who you need. And I will make her suitable for you. But because Adam said there was no suitable helper for himself, he noticed that at that point. So then God put him into a deep sleep, took a rib from his side, and made woman. So she came out of his personality, his character. She just like him. So what you don't like about her or him is what you don't like about yourself. But notice he didn't take, him out of, didn't take her out of his head to lord over and didn't take her out of his feet to step on, but took her out of his side to stand by him. And every good man that succeeds has a good woman who's there to support him. Someone there who knows how to take care of business when he doesn't know how to take care of certain things, knows how to take care of the home when he doesn't, I was thinking, and many of you all know this, sometimes your, your uh, spouse, if you're married and your wife has to go out on a business trip and leaves you in charge with the kids, and the kids are all crying, don't, mommy, don't. 
You know, like the one little kid that came to daddy at 9 o'clock at night and says, are we going to eat today? <laughs> We're not good at that sometimes. There's certain things that we are not good at, but that you are. And it's not just housekeeping, it's finances. Some of us men would make a wreck of our finances. And we have a good woman that knows finances. Turn it over to them and let them do it. You see, because it's a, it's, it's a, suit, a suitable uh, relationship that God knows what I need because I've been, in I've been in the garden with him for that time in my single life. He knows me and he knows exactly what I need and he's going to bring me that person to make it right. Amen. Teamwork. All right, that's enough about the single life. Let's move on now to Genesis chapter 3. Spouses. Spouses. Gen this is where, so if all of those things are taken care of in Genesis 2 in the, in the garden, in that single life, you've got a good foundation. If there's lack in there, we need to get back, start over and build that relationship with the Lord. But chapter 3, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now where did she get that information from? That's right, because God spoke to him those exact words, and he was good enough to teach it to her. You see, and, and when we're talking about spouses now, we're talking about the foundation of that relationship has to be around God and the Word of God. There should be a Bible study at least every day between the husband and the wife, however simple or short it may be. There should be something taking place in that home where he is sharing what God has showed him to her, and she is sharing back what she's receiving in the word herself. So she learned that from the man. God talked to, talked to the man. The man communicated it to her. Now she's communicating it to the, to the devil. And then, of course, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, because God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took it of its fruit and ate it. And then she turned around and gave it to her husband with her, and he ate it. And they no both noticed they were, their eyes were open, and they saw they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and Adam said, and hid from the presence of the Lord with her amongst the trees. And the Lord said, Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. So notice here that one of the frontal attacks on families is when one of the spouses listens to an unauthorized voice. You see, she had listened to, to, to her husband, Adam. He was authorized because God had spoken to him as an authorized voice. But now she's in conversation with the serpent, an unauthorized voice. And she never should have held a conversation with him. 
But she opened herself up and began to talk to the serpent. And that is true today. Sometimes you get out with the girls, and some of them aren't right with God. Some of them are on the, the fringes of, of Christianity. And they start saying, what's going on with your life? Girl, you need to have some fun. And yeah, I know your, your husband so-and-so, and, -so and uh, you can do better than that. He's working in a dead-end job there. He's never going to be able to get you the house that you should get and the cars that you should drive. Look what you're driving. And they start talking to you. Man, that man over there in the, in the business where we work, he's been looking at you the whole time. He would, he would take you to the limit. He, you'd be able to get anything you want. You hear? That's how they talk, right? Same with the men. Man, what you doing? Just one woman? Come on. You know we hang out with others. What do you mean we hang out with others? You see, but that's the voices. That's the serpent coming in the garden, tempting us with an unauthorized voice. And if we sit there long enough and start to engage in it, we start to fall into it. And pretty soon like that, she turned her eyes and started looking at the fruit. And she never should have stopped at that point. For instance, and likely, where was Adam? He was supposed to what? Tend the garden and protect the boundaries. But that fool wasn't even doing anything. In fact, if you read about it, I've always thought in my mind, until recently, that he was out doing his gardening work and she was blown by the tree. But the word says there that after she ate the fruit, she turned and he was standing right next to her. And a man who is in right relationship with God and understands boundaries and understands the protection should have grabbed her immediately and said, get away from that tree. Or took that apple or whatever it was out of her hand and threw it down and said, don't you remember what God told us? But instead he sat quiet and he let her take of the fruit. And then he turned around and took it too. Wow. We need men who know what the word of God says and are not afraid to speak that word at the right time. Not weak men who are afraid, oh, I might not, I mean, I might offend somebody. But men that would stand up and say, this is what God's word said. This is absolutely wrong. We have to make a stand against this. And I'm glad for Bishop Harris, God bless that man, in the years of ministry to make a stand like he makes. Been criticized and, 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 and ostracized from things because of his stand. But he stood firm. And we need men like that in the house of God today that are not afraid that are not just standing there by the wife going, whatever you say, dear, whatever you say, dear. Sometimes you got to make a stand. And the wife might have to make a stand and say, it ain't right. This is not what God's word says. We're not to be involved in that. Can you say amen? amen. So she rejected what her husband had told her that God had said. She totally ignored it, rejected it. And look at verse 6. And she ate it and turned around and gave it to Adam. And so here's the point. He abandoned his responsibility. He didn't hold her to the truth. He abandoned his responsibility. And then in verse 7 through 9, here comes God. Have you eaten from that tree? How many of you know he already knew the answer to that? 
but he wanted Adam to face his reality. So he said, have you eaten of that tree? And of course, men being men, turned and said, that woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit and I did eat. You know, we always, when we men get in back in the corners, we start that blaming, placating, excusing. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like. You know, it's a whole, instead of accepting what? Responsibility. You see, and if he, he would have accepted his responsibility, he would have made an appeal to her, don't do it. And then had she rejected his appeal and she ate it, he should have stood back and said, girl, girl, you're going to die. God said in the day that you eat it, you're going you're gonna to die. And he did not have to eat that fruit either. Had he accepted his, because you know, sometimes we can't control what the other person's going to do. And you can be in a Christian home, but you cannot guarantee the results of anything. What you can do is back in the garden, you learned your relationship with God, and God told you what your assignment is, and you need to do it. But that doesn't mean the other person is going to comply with it. And she, he could have at that point said, don't do it. And if she did it, he could have called it out. And when God said, have you eaten of the fruit? He knew that meant God was saying, whoever ate of it is going to die. And had he been a real man and accepted his responsibility, he'd have looked at God and said, take my life in her place. I'm here to protect her. But instead, he ate the fruit and man fell in the garden. But aren't you glad that the last Adam, Jesus, accepted his responsibility? And when he saw us as the bride of Christ dying in our sins because we had eaten of the fruit also, instead of him saying, that, that woman, that union that you gave me, God, instead of that, he said, Father, I'll take their sins and I'll die on the cross. I'll take their death upon me. I will die in their place. That's what Adam should have done, but he didn't do it. And there's a lot of men that abandon their responsibility and they see the mess. And instead of them calling it out and asking God in intercession to bring it upon them and save her and protect her, they don't. And then the relationship falls apart. That's a tough word, isn't it? To, to say that men, we have to sacrifice. Like Jesus said, you will love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wow. Gave himself for it. Not, not a lot of people like the word sacrifice. Remember Jesus in his early, the first, let's see, his ministry was three years. And probably the first two and a half years, a little more, he was about doing great things. Raising the dead, opening blind eyes. Feeding the 5,000. Well, I said 5,000. Last night I was reading in my meditation and I realized it said the men were 5,000. So that means it's probably like 15,000 or more. And, but he was feeding them and he was curing their diseases. He was healing their sick, raising their dead. People that were paralyzed were, in, were walking and, and people were following him in droves. And, and isn't that like people when they could see a show they're going to show up. 
And, and Jesus was all right because he was healing people and setting them free. The crowd was just coming to see the show. Sounds like church today, don't it, in some places? If you don't put on the best show here, I'm going to go down the street and go to another show. And, 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 and if you ever dare say the word sacrifice in your pulpit, we're gone. We don't want commitment. See, families, no commitment anymore. Just participation, serial relationships, lack of intimacy, lack of commitment. It's all bleeding into the church, and that's what we're seeing happening because the families are falling apart. But Jesus, when he turned, he, he turned to them and he said, Oh, by the way, if you continue following me, you're going to have to take up your cross and, and die. Boom! They were gone. Whew. It was so shocking, Jesus even turned to his disciples and said, Are you guys leaving me too? <laughs> you remember the story? It stunned him so much that here we was 500, 1,000, 5,000 people following him. But as soon as the show was over and commitment was called out, they were gone. And that's what's happening in the church today. There's nothing wrong with all the lights and all the stuff. I get a kick out of watching some of that on TV and the dancing and all of that. But is that all there is to it? As soon as there's a commitment, are they going to stay or leave? And Jesus was talking about that with the church. And it's the same with the relationship. When we build a firm foundation, when troubles come and sacrifices have to be made, we will make those sacrifices. We will stay with that person no matter how sick they are, no matter how far down they go, no matter what mental disorders they develop, we're going to be committed to them all the way through. Can you say amen? amen. And then the last thing here is the seeds. You like that, the S's, singles, spouses, seeds? I'm getting pretty good at this in my old age. Chapter 4, talking about the family. Build your relationship and your single life. Learn to lean on God. Understand boundaries. Then launch into your marriage and spouse and implement it with your family. And then last of all, seed. Now Adam, and Eve, Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain. And I said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, a brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. But Abel also brought the first fruit, firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, I want to ask you this question. Do you know what the purpose of the seed is? The purpose of the seed the purpose of godly offspring. Verse 26 of that same chapter, the last verse of chapter 4, and for Seth, to him also was born a son, and he named him Enoch. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The purpose of our godly offspring is to provoke men themselves and others around them to pray and call upon God for their needs. That's the purpose, what we should be developing into our kids. That they become prayer warriors. That they can build a relationship with God themselves. They can hear God and walk the way God wants them to walk. So are we focusing on that with our children in our homes? 
Or have we forgotten that and we just let church do that thing and they learn in Sunday school and VBS and that's about all they get, but they don't get that training in the church. They see daddy sitting down with them and saying, let's open the word of God and let's pray. And notice that the, the purpose of this whole offspring here was to bring forth a male child who then would provoke men to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the purpose of the seed. But notice that God wasn't very happy and the enemy attacked the family. Here we go again. You see, the enemy attacked the marriage with Eve. And now the enemy's going to attack the siblings, the children. You know that if he can't get through to your marriage, he's going to try to get to your children. He's on a mission to destroy families. Because he wants to destroy society and he wants to destroy countries and nations. And bring it all to naught. Because family is definitely the fabric of the nation. And marriage is the glue of that fabric that keeps everything together. And Satan knows that. And that's why this story is here in the very beginning to show us how important family is to everything that's going to follow in this word. And I want you to see here that, that the struggle comes with Cain in verse 3 who knew what he was supposed to bring because his father had taught him but it says he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now, in my mind, I thought, well, what's wrong with that? He went out. He had a bountiful harvest. He went out and picked the best grapes, the best apples, the best this, and brought them, and uh, brought it to the Lord as an offering. But then I looked at the Hebrew word for offering. See it there? And Cain brought an offering. So you and me, I know what you're thinking, like I was thinking what an offering is. But you know what that translates to mean? Leftovers. Cain brought his leftovers of his harvest to the Lord. And God will always reject our leftovers. What do I mean by leftovers? You done paid your Comcast, your mortgage, your car, your insurance, your phone bill, and then what's ever left over you bring to the church. And then we wonder why we're not blessed. Man, I've been given to the Lord. But what you're giving is what? The Cain offering. Your leftovers. What am I supposed to do? Well, the word of God says, bring the first fruits. Like Abel did. There is the first mention of how to bring an offering. The firstborn. Not the lastborn. Not what you can find in the flock left over. But go and inspect and find the best one you can find in all of that. And bring it to the Lord. And the Bible said God respected Abel's um, sacrifice and his uh, tithe, so to speak, or his first fruit offering. And God blessed his life. But to Cain, he didn't. And see, the enemy is always trying to rise up. And so what, what happens is, is then Cain is having this conversation with God. So they, they had that conversation going on. That's kind of cool that God came and spoke to him and said, why are you looking so sad? And Cain said, uh, oh, nothing's wrong. And God, God knew something was wrong, uh, wrong. And he said, well, you know, if you just go and do what's right. Isn't that something? He didn't say, I'm, I'm cursing you now and I'm going to condemn you and judge you. You're not going to be blessed, but you know you can change that by doing what? Go back and do it right. And that's what God says to us. Don't be all, oh, well, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have. Go and do what's right. Get it right in order. Because that's a problem in our country, a problem in the church, that we don't have any order anymore. God is a God of order. 
And I don't mean that you have to have A, B, C, and D in your service, but I mean that our lives are in order. The husband is the head of the house. The wife is submissive to the husband. The children are obeying the Lord. That's real simple. That's the order. Well, I don't believe in submitting. Well, that's your problem. You can go on yourself and be, you know, whatever you want to be. But just remember, when it ain't working out for you, maybe you just need to get it back in order. How about that? Ain't that something? My life, my finances are in a mess. Why? Well, because you're not doing the order of giving the way you should give. And it just is so simple. But it's so profound because we, we make it difficult because why? We want to make our own boundaries. And you can't. God's got an order and it has to be followed. You should read the book of Leviticus, just the first couple of chapters, when God is telling them how to um, offer up the offerings. And he said, for the trespass offering, I want this animal, and I want you to kill it on the north side of the altar, and I want you to cut it into quarters, and I want you to lay it in order on the altar the way I tell you to do it. Wow, pretty meticulous, right? Like a little instruction manual. And when they did that, the fire of God came and accepted it. But had they just got sloppy and said, oh man, just go ahead and slay it right here, you know, and just, just throw it up on the altar, God wouldn't have accepted it. It wasn't the animal, it was the order. That's what God was looking for. And it's the same with uh, when Elijah, when he was getting ready to call fire down from heaven. You remember when he, after he had let them do their thing, finally he restored the altar. And then the Bible says he put the wood on it. And then he put the trench around it and had him put all that water on it. And then he put the sacrifice on it. The Bible says that he laid the wood in order. Then the fire fell. It's not going to fall until we get order. And that's the hardest thing in, in the world because we've had a certain pattern in our family for generations. And we're used to it. And we're so used to it, it's hard for us to see that it's even wrong, much less make a change in it. Remember I told you that story way back how long have we been together? 25-something years? I told you the story about the, the husband and wife. They were newly married, and she was making a ham and uh, had this big old pan, put the ham in there. Fit good, but she cut the ends of it off and put them aside. And he says to her, why, why did you cut the ends of the ham off? She said, well, I don't know. My mama always did. So he called mama. She was still alive. And uh, I saw your daughter do this, and she said, you taught her that? She said, yeah, I do the same thing. And he said, why do you all do that? She said, you know I, know, I don't really know. The pan's big enough. I never thought about it. But my mama taught me, well, she happened to still be alive, so he called her, and he asked her the same question. Why does your daughter and your granddaughter cut the ends of the ham off when they get ready to roast and cook a ham? The little old lady said, I don't know. I did it because I didn't have a pot big, pan big enough to hold it. <laughs> but there was a custom started, and nobody ever challenged it, whether it was right or wrong. And it's the same with the rules in the family. This is just how we work. Some cultures say men are just going to fool around on the wife. That's how we do it. No, that's not how we do it. Who told you? Whose voice, whose unauthorized voice have you been listening to? Uh, well, you know, uh, marriages aren't made to last, so just have serial marriages. When you get done with this one, throw her away. And, and remember, I read to you out of Malachi, God was wearied. Why was he wearied? Not because of anything other than the marriage was not being respected. God gets very wearied at a nation 
and a church whose families are not taking marriage seriously in that relationship. Kind of like some people look at it like buying a car when they approach, you know, getting married. You know, you go on the lot and there it is. No dents, no scratches. Crank it up and the motor just purrs. Exhaust is just as quiet as can be. Top rolls back. Real nice. Tires are nice and full. Engine purrs perfect. It's good. feels good. But over time, you get some dents, scratches, wrinkles by the bumper. The exhaust kind of stinks a little bit. The motor ain't purring like it used to. Kind of making noises. Snap, crackle, pop. Tires going a little fat, losing their plumpness and sagging. Top don't go back like it used to. Y'all following me here? Do I have to explain it? Sometimes the woman's body, ain't, it's those tires that just ain't holding up like they used to. The bottom ain't tight as it was. Top ain't going back like it used to. A few rent, uh, dents and wrinkles and little noisy on the back side sometimes. So what do, what do we do? We trade in the car. Let's go get a new one. And that's how people are treating marriage. Is, uh, as time goes on, we do get older and things don't work. And even the men with sexual dysfunction. And then they get embarrassed about it and don't want to do nothing about it. And then the wife's like, well, why don't you want to touch me anymore? And he don't want to tell you the truth. I can't keep it up. And we don't realize it's something, prostate problem. Go to the doctor, get you some Viagra. <laughs> Hello? Am I being all right here? I don't mean to be too bold here, but I'm trying to tell you that it, it's stuff like that happens. The older you get. And, and things don't work like they used to. And you, what you do in a commitment is you start to make your adjustments to make sure you take care of the, the wants of the other person. And you talk it out and you work it out. You don't just go trade it in and say, I'll just go get me a new aversion. And that's what usually happens. And it's, it's going both ways. It's not, it used to be just men would do that. Now women are doing it. Packing their stuff and leaving with some 30-year-old that can't keep a job. So. <laughs> but he's hot. <laughs> I'll take care of him now because I got retirement. In verse 9, um, verse nine, he says, the Lord said to Adam, where are you? So he wants the truth. And Adam tells him the truth. I heard your voice. And, and we need to teach our children, uh, verse 9 of chapter 3, but also um, Cain when uh, he told him in verse 7, if you do well. Uh, but verse 8, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and came to pass when they were in the field. He rose up against his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He knew where Abel was. He's dead. And notice what he says. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He lies to God. Now you know our kids are going to lie to us. And sometimes we make the mistake of taking it lightly when they lie to us. And they understand it to be, oh well, it's okay to kind of lie every now and then. Man, when they lie, you need to make a big deal out of it. 
and make it so strong that they will never at least lie to you like they lied before, because they're going to lie. But make sure they know lying ain't acceptable in this house. The truth is what sets you free. Yeah, you're going to get whipped either way because you're going to lie and I'm going to find out about your lie. <laughs> and it's going to be worse. My mom, my mom always tells me it's going to be worse. I'm like, go ahead and give me the whip, whip right now. I did it. <laughs> and she would. But they need to be taught how to tell the truth. And, and they need to also learn how to discern the truth uh, that's out there. Because there's an attack by the enemy on, on uh, the children. Um, <clears throat> And lies in everywhere you look, uh, being manipulated by the media and uh, told lies. Like, who would have ever thought Buzz Lightyear would have a homosexual relationship in that cartoon? Or Frozen 2. No, not her. One of the, one of the people in there is having a, a lesbian relationship in a cartoon. And uh, Disney has, has clearly said, we are going to promote this. And, and it's a shame. But, so what do we do? Do we hide the kids from it? Well, yeah, they're not going to go see that movie. My grandkids aren't going to go see it. At least I hope not. But I need to teach them more importantly than not to go see it, but to be able to understand why you can't see it. To discern what's going on. Have you ever sat down with some of your children and watched a movie that you knew had some manipulation in it and then pointed it out to the kids? Did you just see that? Did you see that subtle message? And most of us don't see it because it's so subtle, but our subconscious picks it up and recounts it on the inside, and over time it starts to erode our moral base. How many of you seen the Tostitos commercial? You know what Tostitos are, right? The little dip chips? Yeah. And uh, it's a simple commercial. Everybody's having fun. It's a party. And then at the end, the big Tostitos bag is sitting there, and four letters pop out from the middle of Tostitos. Guess what they are? T-I-T-S. Pops right out, pops back in, and then glows and goes back. And you know, you, you've seen the commercial and you never saw that, did you? But now you saw it. <laughs> and you're wondering, why did they do that? Why didn't they put the T-O-S up there? Why didn't they just ignite the whole Tostito thing? Because there's a subtle message in there to kind of connect something sexual with something they want to sell. And, and that's not the only, there's so many other things that are hidden in those innocent commercials. And I'm telling you, the kids are under attack. We'll, we'll not change because we, we've got our, our stuff together. But our kids are vulnerable and we don't even know what they're watching. And we don't even teach them how to read through those things. I mean, I can't keep them from seeing those commercials. They'll be streaming on their phone or what have you, and those stuff will come up. But I can teach them how to discern and see what that evil message is that's been hidden in that particular show. So we have to take time to train our children because Satan is after our kids. I told, uh, Genesis 3 and 15, remember, that's the law of first mention. The first mention of Satan's attack on the children is in Genesis 3 and 15. And it said, I will put enmity between his seed and your seed. That's the first mention to let you know Satan is after your seed. See, notice he was after the single man in the garden. Then he was after the married man and woman. And then he was after the seed. 
And he'll always after try to destroy one part, if not all parts of our family. And so our kids are being attacked. So Genesis 3.15, the seed, that's where it first mentioned. Then Exodus chapter, what is it, 1? When the word is announced that there was a deliverer born named Moses. They didn't know the name yet, but there was a deliverer born. What did the Pharaoh do? Kill all the male children. Kill all the firstborn male children. Attack the kids. Kill them. Then, of course, in Matthew, what is it, chapter uh, 2, when uh, Herod finds out that Jesus, uh, a Savior, has been born, that they're going to call the king. And, and he orders what? The slaughtering of all the firstborn males. Can you imagine the cry that was taking place and the bloodshed of all those babies being killed? And then we take it to Revelation, the, um, chapter 12, when we see the dragon standing before the pregnant woman, and it says, waiting to devour the child. Satan is always after the children. He's after destroying them. That's what abortion was all about. It wasn't about women's rights. It's the devil behind it trying to kill the children. And we find ourselves... Uh, blind to the fact that Satan is after them, but he is totally after them. Why? Because he knows that there is a generation coming in verse 26 that men will start to call upon the Lord if the seed becomes godly. And he wants to stop it before it can all happen. But we've got news for him. We're going to pour the word of God into our children. We're going to pour it through the church, through the Sunday school, through the VBS, through the activities of children, and we're going to pour it into our homes so that our children become saved by the blood of the Lamb, know Jesus on a personal basis, and understand the Word of God. Amen. There are attacks by um, all different directions. Um, in the book, you'll see, and I'm catching a little bit of flack from that on the which I, I love interaction, so I, at least I know they're reading when they get mad about something. So the L, what is it, LGBTQ something? Uh, they've been sending me little nasty messages about my short-sightedness and my narrow views. And I thank them. Thank you for your opinion. I'll be praying for you. This transgender issue going on now? Who would have thought? I mean, look at the escalation of immorality that's taken place. School curriculum, teaching, you know, I saw the other day, uh, y'all have a head start here, and, and you know, um, the report came out now that children in the third grade, uh, and, and I like what Head Start does because I, don't, I think they kind of balanced out the numbers there, but the children don't knew, know how to read or to do math anymore. I'm like, what? And, and it's not, thank God, the, the, the work that's being done by the Head Start program has helped to lower that, that gap, but there's still a gap in there because a lot of the curriculum is not about reading and writing and arithmetic anymore. It's about social issues and immorality. If you want to be, if you feel like you're really Linda but not really John, then we'll help you get this change. And we won't tell your parents about it. What kind of craziness is that? And where does it all, where does it all come the blame? On us as families that have not taken this cultural change seriously to train up our children who will stand up and say, that's wrong, teacher. 
My Bible says, can you imagine what? They'll be sent home. You and I got sent home for talking too much in class. Your kids should be sent home because they stood up for the truth. And I would give them a high five and put them in a school that I can trust. Even if I had to lose out on, I had to trade in my, I don't have a Maserati, but trade in my Maserati and get a Volkswagen just so I can get them into the right place. That's the sacrifice. That's what we learned in the garden. To be able to do what God wants us to do the right way, even if it costs us something, to make sure we get the godly seed and it's done in the right way. Amen. So I'm going to wrap up here now with a few things back over to Malachi. And I do promise it's a few things. I know when preachers say, I'm closing, you can count on 30 more minutes, but that's, that's not true. Yeah, I'm bringing it in for a landing. Uh, just some points. Malachi 2 and 10, notice that he calls the relationship and the marriage a covenant. You've been taught that, I know, by, by bishop and lady. And, but he calls it a covenant. It's different than a contract. We've been deceived in this world to believe that marriage is a contract. But see, a contract is an agreement between two parties, but a covenant is a pledge. Covenant is an agreement that, a, a, a contract is an agreement that you can break, but a covenant is perpetual. You seal a covenant when you, uh, in blood, so to speak, you sign a contract. You can opt out of a contract while the covenant can never be changed. And I'm so glad that the relationship I have with God is a covenant. He can't get rid of me. <laughs> he said, nothing shall separate me from the love of God. Because it's a covenant, you see. He's not going to love me any more or any less. Oh, he's going to let me suffer my consequences. But he's not going to love me any less or more based upon what I do or don't do. That's a covenant. And that's what marriage is. He's saying it's a covenant. And, and God was upset in verse 10 there. He said, because you've dealt treacherously with her. You've been unfaithful. You've been unfair. You're treat, treating your wife wrong. You're joking about her, abusing her mentally, physically, emotionally. You see, and, and, and I would say this, that men who's, who are dining with their wife and a young girl goes by and the man does this, you are dealing treacherously with your wife. Keep your eyes on your honey. And don't worry about that thing that just went by. Because she's going to take all your money. <laughs> Some men flirt with girls right in front of their wife. They spend more time talking with someone, some girl at work about her problems than they do at home. Watching porn. Making her watch it with them. Then, and this is what, I know he's not saying that here with these descriptions, but I'm telling you, when we deal with our wife treacherously, God is not happy with it at all. And the Lord says, I witnessed the communication you had at your marriage. God watched it all. And then God was uh, upset because they weren't taking it serious, nor were they following the order. And he was aggravated because they took it so lightly. So marriage, remember this, it's not for your happiness. Once you got married, you found out you ain't going to be happy anyway. <laughs> she got her ways and you got your ways. And she has what's called unmet expectations and you have unmet expectations. You remember how happy you were when the wedding was coming and 
all the glow and all the excitement and all the pressure and stress. Then the marriage happened, you went on your honeymoon, things couldn't be better. Then you had to go home and start reality. And in that now starts to erode because we don't realize each other has expectations. You see, the wife comes from a home where she might, uh, her parents did supper, ate at the table, put their dishes in the sink. Someone was assigned to rinse them off and put them in the dishwasher. And everything was clean when you left after the meal. Everything, the kitchen was clean. He comes from a home where you get your food and go sit anywhere you want. Leave your dishes there. If you do get up and take them, you forget to scrape them off so they're full of food in the sink. And she's like, oh, this is, this is I'm building a home. But after a while, why don't you clean your dishes? Oh, well, we didn't do that like we did it at home. That's not how we did it at home. See, unmet expectations. And those are small things, but they get bigger and bigger over time because we don't sit down and talk about that. That's the silent killer of all relationships is the unmet expectations. To sit down and talk about life and what, how things are supposed to be. And you talk about sexuality. You know, we don't touch that. It's almost like the Holy Spirit leaves in the bedroom. Holy Spirit is everywhere. Whoa, whoa. And do we talk about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable? How many times? We don't talk about those things. We just assume that's what it's going to be like because that's the home I came from. You know, or, or, or how, how much, how we spend, or how we plan things, or how many vacations, all those things. You, you've got to sit down and deal with that. And that's part of God's plan for our life is to make sure we get those expectations taken care of because those unmet ones will destroy us uh, last story second kings chapter 5 naaman um, the servant of the king he was captain of the host of syria he had um, leprosy and uh, the king said he heard about a prophet who was elisha and that elisha could pray for you and the leprosy would leave so he sent Naaman, he loved Naaman dearly, he sent him out to go visit with Elisha, and he got him the pomp and ceremony, had all the horses, the chariots, the flags, everything, the trumpets, and they pulled up to Elisha's little house, and uh, Elisha looked out and sent Gehazi, a servant, and said, what do you guys want? So first thing was, uh, Naaman was expecting the pastor to come out, not the associate pastor, so he was a little bit upset because the pastor didn't come out and see him. So the second thing was uh, the word of the Lord from the pastor said, go dip in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be all right. Well, Naaman was like, wait a minute. First of all, I don't get the pastor with all the money I put in that church. I should get the pastor. And, and now you're telling me to go dip in this nasty, dirty Jordan River. There's other rivers that are so clean. Jordan's where the children urinate. That's where they, they put all the trash and the refuse and the sewer from the city goes in there. And you want me to go in there? Me, the king, uh, the king's servant, the commander of the host of Syria to go in there? And he goes, I'm not going to do it. And the Bible says he got angry to the point of wrath, fury. Why? The man of God said you're going to be healed. Wouldn't that be good news? But he got angry because of what? Unmet expectations. And it even says it in the verse there. 
It's, I think it's verse 14. It says, Naaman says, I said within myself, he will surely come out. He, the pastor, will come out. He will put his hand on my head. I will be healed. That's how he thought it was going to happen. And when it didn't happen like he thought it was going to happen, his expectations were destroyed. He became wroth, filled with wrath and fury over something that was good news. So one of the guys next to him and said, dude, you got to wake up, man. You're dying of an incurable disease. And if you get in that river and get an infection, you're dead anyway. But if you get in that river, like the man of God says, and you get healed, you got something. And he finally came to himself. But notice how that unmet expectation created a whole conflict within him and an action of anger on the outside. And so it is with our families. We need to sit down together. And, and when you do premarital counseling, and when you do getting people prepared for marriage, you need to find out what those expectations are going to be. How often do you eat? What do you eat? Simple things that can become big in that relationship. Because it's all about building strong families and making sure that our homes are attack-proof so that the Lord can fulfill the purpose of bringing up godly offspring so that when our children get older, they know how to call upon the name of the Lord and they provoke other people to call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for the teaching. Help us, O oh Lord, to follow your commands, to be the people that you want us to be, to live the way you want us to live, and to take bold, make bold decisions and live boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ, to no longer be hiding in the shadows in a culture that is going down the sewer pipe, that we'll stand up, Lord, and proclaim the goodness of the Lord, even if we're the small minority. But with you, God, we are the majority. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for praying for me. Amen.